0: Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the 32nd Psalm, Psalm 32, page 395 in the Church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. We're going to take a a week break from our studies in Mark. I I determined that, and guessed, that a lot of people would be gone, and and there are a lot of people gone, and I wanted us to try to move along as we've been moving together through Mark and do our best to continue that pattern, so I thought it would seem appropriate to So switch gears for a Sunday, and so here we are in Psalm 32. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found, Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked. But the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Amen. May God help us this morning. Let's pray together to that end. Father, we thank you and ask for your mercy. And we certainly ask for your help as we study from our Bibles this 32nd Psalm. Please, Father, show us how great your gospel is here in order that all of us might live and die in the joy of its comfort. And please show us our sin. and Don't let us pretend like our personal sin is only a minor matter. It's not. And please show us that we can be and are in Christ set free from all our sins. And that's not through our personal power or any kind of promise that we would make, but only through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And finally, God, please show us how are we to be honestly thankful and heart joyful to you for our deliverance, that we may sing as David sung and throw a party as the father did when his prodigal son came home, confessing his sins. And as always, God, please speak to my profound weakness in this setting. Please help me. Have mercy on me. Show yourself great in order that your name would be glorified and your people would be helped. All people, Father, would be helped. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I found out this week there's a painting that was done by a gentleman named Hans Holbein. It was done during the Renaissance, which has the title, The Ambassadors. The painting is of two extremely prosperous young men of their day, each being, as you might guess, ambassadors. In fact, one of the gentlemen in the painting was the French ambassador to Henry VIII. And these two men in the painting were depicted as they actually were they were very prosperous exceptional in their work men of prestige uh, power they were flourishing they were very portly people and that was one of the signs in the Renaissance that they were flourishing however at the bottom of the painting Holbein purposely paints in a skull in a really peculiar way, which was meant purposely to warn these guys and everyone who would look at the painting, uh, it was a memento mori, which is Latin for remember that you have to die. Remember that you have to die. And it was meant to say to these men, uh, what you see here will not go on forever. And anyone looking at the painting actually paid attention to it. What you have is not going to go on forever. Forever. And it's not what matters most. So remember, you're going to have to die. Also, at the top left corner of the painting, Holbein also purposely paints in a, a crucifix. It's, it's barely there. It's silver. But again, his intent was to say, look to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness that you need before you die. Please cry out to Jesus for mercy. Don't let prestige and position and power fool you. Go to Christ before it's too late when you face him on the judgment. You are mortal. You will die. You will face judgment. It's a great warning, especially since so many people then, as in now, dismiss death, dismiss Christ, and they do this in the midst of their flourishing. Friday afternoon, I was coming home from church. I was happy. I looked to my right. I'm not sure what lake I passed. There's about ten thousand of them here, but anyway, there were lots of people on boats, and it made me so happy. I imagined myself them having a wonderful time: kids in the boat, parents in the boat, who knows, friends in the boat. And I asked God, in my mind, I said, God, please bless them. Let them enjoy their, their little trip, their little holiday. But then I said this, that God, in the midst of their flourishing, there's any that are not in Christ, don't let them think that this will go on forever. Halt that thought and bring them to Jesus. Here's my question. Since the skull and the crucifix in the painting completely dominated all the talk in town when the painting came out. In other words, people were talking about the skull, and they were talking about the crucifix. They weren't talking about the two guys, the ambassadors. How do you think the ambassadors felt about that? And the reason why I say that is what Holbein did is what was called a prestige painting. This, if you would, was the original selfie. The intent of these two men to ask Holbein to paint the painting was to promote their prestige, to promote their power in the community. And when you think about it, common practice was you typically gave the artist a little money in the beginning and you didn't pay in full until the end when it was done. Question, do you think Holbein got paid? (laughs) Do you think he got paid? Most of the talk was about the skull and and the crucifix. None of the talk was about the guys. And see, what you have here is an example of speaking truth to power. Speaking truth to power. The ambassadors were being confronted with the truth of their mortality through the paintbrush Of Holbein. That was his intent. Speaking truth to power. Truth. As good as you got it here, it's not going to last. Truth. You are going to die. Truth. You will stand before Christ. Truth. You need him. You need the cross. If that day of standing is going to go well. And so speaking truth to power is exactly, exactly the backdrop of Psalm 32. And also the context. Which takes us right to our first point. a story which needs to be told. So if your Bible's open, you'll see that David is the writer, identified as the writer there. And scholars tell us that Psalm 32 is tied to Psalm 51. And both Psalms refer or speak to that terrible affair when at the height of his power, appearing to be kind of semi-retired, walking on the roof of his palace, King David, who should have been at war with his troops, he sees a lovely lady. Her name is Bathsheba. She's bathing. She's bathing. She's another man's wife, but he wants her. She's another man's wife, but he's king, and he wanted her despite having many beautiful wives already. So he had her brought to him. They have sex. She becomes pregnant. She sends word. And David, instead of trying to set things right, does even more wrong, calling Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, back from war, attempting to set things up so that Uriah might have sex with his wife, Bathsheba, to cover up David's sin. However, Uriah is not that kind of man. He's a noble man. Isaiah tells us that noble men make noble plans, and by noble deeds they stand. So he won't sleep with his wife. Other men are at war. They're dying. How can I enjoy that right and pleasure? I won't. Therefore, because David's wicked plan falls on his face, he devises another wicked plan. And he sets things up so that Uriah might be easily killed on the battlefield. And, of course, if you know the story, he is killed. And I want you to keep in mind that at this time, David is God's chosen king. David is God's anointed king. David is a man after God's own heart. And if you're keeping track of the commandments that David broke, he broke at least four. Here they are. He coveted another man's wife, steals her, commits adultery with her, and murdered her husband. And by the way, uh, David at this time, he's not a young man, you know, with his libido all charged up. He's actually somewhere in his mid-50s. And you should know that David hardens his heart to this sin, to this terrible sin, for a year. For a year. Now, I want you to think on that. For a year, he keeps it on the lowdown, if you would. 52 times in synagogue worship, no confession of sin, no repentance, no forgiveness sought whatsoever. 52 times singing God's praise, no change. 52 times hearing the Torah, no change. 52 times lessons taught and explained, no change. 52 times the commandments read. 52 times the Shema, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Experiencing all that And still refusing to face what he had done, refusing to confess his sins of coveting, stealing, adultery, and murder for at least a year. Until what? Did David move or did God move? Oh, God moved. And love came into town in the form of the prophet Nathan. And God sent Nathan to see David to repentance. 2 Samuel 12. So what does prophet Nathan do? Well, he aims for the heart to stir it, and then he speaks to his mind to confront it. If you like, Nathan's words to David's are a spear to pierce his heart with a story to, to make him think. And he tells the story in such a way that David has sympathy for the innocent and anger towards the guilty, and David is exposed. So Nathan here is speaking truth to power. He tells David the story. There was a poor man who had one lamb, just one, he loved it. 2 Samuel 12:3. he raised it. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And then Nathan says there was a rich ruler who had many lambs. But when a traveler comes into town, instead of taking from his own stock to feed the rich man or the traveler, the rich man took the poor man's lamb, killed it, and fed the traveler with it. And listen to what the Bible says, David burned with anger and shouts. The rich man deserves to die. He must pay for the lambs four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Spoken exactly like a person who is completely out of touch with his sin. No mercy, no quarter. Let's get him and let's get him now. I imagine myself there was a crowd with him like, yeah, David, you're so right. That's what this world needs now. More guys like you. And at that point, we have one of the greatest crescendos of the entire Old Testament as Nathan, speaking truth to power, said to David, verse 7, you are the man. You are the man. And David knew it. So after one year, David is struck by the power of God and the love of God, confronted by the man of God who gave David the word of God. And loved ones, part of David's reaction to that whole scene is what is written here in Psalm 32. Psalm 32. So now you know the context. That's why the story had to be told. And you could almost hear David's voice speaking to us. Listen, dear reader, be teachable here. Stop carrying your load of unconfessed sin. You are a saint, okay, but you're still a sinner. Be mindful of that. And I want you to know there's forgiveness which is yours. Let me speak truth to the power of sin. And don't be like verse 90. See it there? Don't be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, who must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. In other words, be teachable. Be honest about your sin. Have a soft heart and be honest when it comes to your sin. Don't be like an irrational animal. And God has to use bit and bridle to teach you what you need to know. Be honest. Be humble. Don't play the role, forgive me, of Holy Joe or Holy Jane. God is looking for human beings with honest minds and tender hearts, not actors like David with a venomous tongue. Be rational, be sensitive, be biblical, and be honest-thinking human beings. That takes us to our second point. Number two, sins which need to be confessed. And by the way, this 32nd Psalm was Augustine's favorite. In fact, he had it inscribed on his wall by his bed, and he said, in order that he could meditate upon it day and night, he said of this psalm, listen to this Intelligentsia prima esta uta teta noris pictorium. Right? I didn't know what that meant until I got the translation. The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. So in verses 1 and 2, David uses three different words to describe the sin. First word, translated transgressors. And transgressing is when we go our own way, departing from God's truth. David, don't sleep with her. David, she's not your wife. But he doesn't listen. He goes his own way. He departs from God's truth. Second word, translated sin, verse 1b, falling short of the mark. Most of us know that one. The standard is God's law. In other words, uh, we have fallen short of it. We've missed God's mark. The third word, verse two, NIV translates "sinner" is actually another word for sin. Sometimes it's translated um, "iniquity," which means something that's twisted, crooked, perverted. There's some injustice going on here. Oh my, David, are you really going to bring Uriah home to try and cover up what you've done? Are you really, are you really willing to have him killed to cover up what you've done, David? That's perverted. It's twisted. And as you combine these three words used by David to describe sin, the first word describes sin in view of humanity's relationship with God. We rebel against him. The second word describes sin in relation to God's moral law. We fall short of it and we're condemned by it. The third word describes sin in relation to ourselves. As we dive into sin, we become so twisted and so crooked and so perverted. Sometimes you look in the mirror and you go, I don't even know who you are. That sin. What a mess we are. Who will rescue us from this body of sin and death? Unless, unless you're out of touch with your sin. And you might be sitting there thinking, Luke 18, you remember the the Pharisee in in the prayer room? I thank God that I'm not like other people. And that dirty, dirty little David. David's first answer to his sin was to try and cover it up himself. That didn't work. His second answer with, with, with his sin, verse 3, was to keep silent about it, to keep it inside. So I found out again this week, there's this real estate uh, agent named Roy Brooks. He's not alive. This happened a number of years ago. He used to write advertisements for homes that were so popular that people actually bought the newspaper just to read what he was writing. They weren't looking for homes. They just wanted to read what Roy wrote. Because he was always honest. He kept nothing hidden. He was always uh, unsilent, if you would, about the true condition of the home. Listen to one of his advertisements. A nice three-bedroom house with awful decorations and an even worse kitchen. And a garden where your dog, if he's a wild one, <laughs> will be completely at home. So, so right. Mr. People came to Mr. Brooks because they knew that he wouldn't hide anything. Nothing. David was the exact opposite. He tried to keep silent. And verse three and four are so sad because they describe the impact of his silence in his sin that he tried to hide. Now, I want you to understand that. This is the impact for David here of the silence of his sin, which he tried to hide. Verse three, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Uh, Literally, I became old and worn out through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I rarely ever look at the Living Bible, but I looked up the translation of the Living Bible here. I'm just curious. Listen to what it says. There was a time when I wouldn't admit what a sinner I was, but my dishonesty made me miserable and filled my days with frustration. All day and all night your hand was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water on a sunny day. John Stott, writing of this time in David's life when he kept silent about his sin. Listen to what he says. During this period, when he tried to deceive himself from God, he had no peace. Instead, long before the term psychosomatic medicine was coined, right? Physical disorders related to emotional or mental factors, right? Long before the term psychosomatic medicine was coined, David tells how remorse and a tortured conscience resulted in alarming physical symptoms. So look at the impact, the physical impact of unconfessed sin that had on David. He is miserable. He's hurting. Fatigue. Listlessness. Dry. If you go to the doctor, doctors will often tell us of the symptoms of strain and stress and tension of a person living not at ease with themselves. And the cover-ups, many try, are temporal and superficial, and even medicines which are good, and we thank God for them. They can only go so far. But you see, David isn't looking for medical attention because he knows, verse four, he knows it was God. You see it? Day and night, your hand was heavy on me, God. My strength was zapped as in the heat of summer. He knows this was God's doing because he kept silent about his sin. So God has taken away his drive. He's listless. And he looks back, and he's saying it was God's hand. God's hand was heavy on me. This is the loving, disciplining hand of God who loves the child. And this is all part of God's guidance. Don't don't ignore that, right? This is all, verses three and four, all part of God's guidance when it comes to unconfessed sin. So apparently, as David did, we can look at our sin. In fact, we'll say it like this. We can look at our sin in its eye, and carry on unrepentant. We can look at sin, our sin, straight in its eye, and carry on like nothing really happened. And like David, it's far easier to see others' sin scream like a wild man, as David did, listening to Nathan's parable. Far easier to do that than to say to myself, what are you doing, Joe? Confess your sin now. Don't keep silent about it. God, help me. God, forgive me. I've sinned again. And what I want you to see is once a person's conscience has been made alive by the Holy Spirit, to rebel against that conscience, as some of us might be doing right now, to rebel against that conscience can be physically and emotionally unbearable. Sleeplessness, restlessness, feeling totally drained, emptiness, irritability, dryness of soul. So, loved ones, as we think it out, if we think out our life, if that marks us, a great question would be, have we faced our sin? Have we confessed our sins? Have we confessed our sins to God? Or do we ignore it? Now, I know there could be other reasons for those feelings. I get that. I totally understand that. However, today, this is where we're at. Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Because only you and God know the truth. The full truth. It's a terrible thing when other Christians try to read other Christians' mind, right? We're not good at that. God knows. You know. This is what I know. For David, his unconfessed sin is physically debilitating. It crushes him. It saps his strength. It makes him restless and listless. And can you imagine for a moment, just picture this in your head. You're going to your doctor. You're going to tell him your symptoms. Doctor, I'm suffering from sleeplessness, restlessness, feeling totally drained, no energy, empty, irritable, and I feel dry inside. And then the doctor says, hmm, hmm, have you ever asked God to forgive you of your sins? (laughs) Can you imagine that? I don't think a doctor would do that. But I have to do that. Is there sins which need to be confessed to God? Is there sins which you've tried to hide, cover up yourself? Verse 2 you've deceived yourself. Are there sins which need to be confessed? Maybe for years, maybe for months, maybe for days. Final point forgiveness which needs to be enjoyed. Can you imagine if we ended the sermon right there? <laughs> whoa how horrible would that be that'd be untrue to me this is what i wrote down this morning if the sermon ended right then it would be like not seeing my children at christmas it would be like having stewed beets for dinner with liver and onions and cabbage no dessert it would be like a sunday night where i couldn't take a walk with my wife see but this psalm has dessert verse five do you see it there then i acknowledge my sin to you to you god to you, God, didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what did the Lord do? And you forgave the guilt of my sin. You forgave the guilt of my sin. So we must confess our sins to God because confession in the Bible is the first condition of forgiveness because it involves a humble and contrite heart. Listen to the Proverbs, Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen: Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Isaiah 57, 15. These are the ones I lift up. God speaking. These are the ones I lift up. Those who are humble, contrite in spirit, trembling at my word. I restore the crushed. I revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. There it is. Remember the first reading that we had this morning, Luke 15, 18. Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. To which the father replied, you better believe you did. And you're going to pay for that, wasting all our money like that? Is that what happened? Aren't you glad that was not said? What did the father say? Well, he spoke truth to the power of sin. Uh, Quick. Taku is the Greek word. It means no delays. What are you waiting for? Let's throw a party. He asked for forgiveness. He gets it just like that. Will you forgive me for a moment? Party. 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 Hey, Mom and Dad, why are we having a party? Remember that? We took all the... He's back. He's humble. He's contrite. We're going to have a nice night together. You see, when David stopped covering up his sin, God immediately covered over it. When we as God's children stop covering up our sin, God covers it. In Christ, he already has... He already has. We just need to apply it to our souls. Again, Augustine writing on this, the word is scarcely in his mouth before the wound is healed. I mean, can you imagine that, this kind of quick forgiveness and and just quick restoration, if that was common practice in our homes, in our relationships, in our marriages, in the church, can you imagine how dynamic that would be? Oh, good, friend. I'm good. You good? Great. You want to go eat? Let's have a nice, let's get dessert. Nobody gets to have cabbage. We're going to get chicken tacos with chips and hot sauce and a big old Coke. Not a Diet Coke, a big Coke. That's my festival stuff. Why? Well, the Father has forgiven me. And by the way, that is the person God is speaking to in verse 8. Do you see it there in verse 8? When God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you, right? I'll teach you what you need to know. Okay, what kind of lesson about the need to confess your sins to me? That's what we're learning here. The need not to be silent. Don't try to cover it up. Don't be like an irrational animal behaving like you're not a sinner, trying to cover it, deflect it. You are a sinner, but I'm a forgiving God. Now, you're sensible people. I leave this to you, but sometimes I think that we do a very poor job of confessing our sins to God in our personal prayers. I mean, telling it out full, right? Not just, God, forgive me of my sins. This is what David had to do. God, I saw her, and God, I lusted after her. I had to have her, and I got her. I did a terrible thing to her, God. Tried to cover it up, had a man murdered. And then I went around for a year pretending like nothing happened. What's wrong with me, God? I need your help. I need to be forgiven. You see, I don't think we're as good at that as we're as good at telling each other, just do, be better, do better, try harder, I'll kind of come on, Christianity, what's wrong with you? Come on. We're good at telling others, be holy, good. But are we good with confession? I can promise you, if you're not good at confession, speaking from personal experience, then we're out of touch with our sin. And sometimes we can mislead ourselves. if We think that the really good saints are the ones really serious about things. A kind of you know a cross between a, a grumpy and serious, uh, who's Squidward, just kind of moody and kind of always pushing judgment, just like David did, right? When he heard Nathan's parable, he didn't think about his sin. He was angry. That guy deserves to die. He's got to pay for that. What's wrong with him? What's wrong with our world? But you see, maybe, maybe like David, they're just miserable inside they're dealing with unconfessed sin and the only way they know how to cover it up is by deflecting moral judgments calls for more holiness which are fine but that person is blind to their own sin and they simply try to deflect loved ones we need to show some gospel understanding God's wonderful plan is not for saints. It's for sinners. Stubborn, mule-headed sinners with all the generosity and the kindness that grace provides. So we should enjoy it. Plan for it. Don't despair. There is no plan B with God because of our sin. That's how we usually do, right? I've done this. It was so horrible. I'm on the second tier track. I'm not on my first track. I'm on the second tier because of my sin. No. Verse one, happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Sins are covered. Happy is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. What's deceit? Verse 3. When I kept silent about the reality of my sin, I was miserable. Miserable. Listen to Luther on Psalm 32. The 32nd Psalm is an excellent Psalm of instruction that teaches us what sin is. And how one might be freed from it and be righteous before God. Our reason does not know what sin is and tries to make satisfaction for it with works. But the psalmist says that even saints are sinners. They cannot become holy or blessed except by confessing themselves as sinners before God, knowing that they are regarded as righteous only from the grace of God, apart from any service or work. In short, listen to this, our righteousness is called, in plain language, the forgiveness of our sins. Our righteousness is called the forgiveness of our sins. Or as it says here, sins not counted, sins covered, sins not to be seen. Here stands the clear plain words. All the saints are sinners and remain sinners. But they are holy because God in his grace neither sees nor count these sins, but forgets, forgives, and covers them. There is thus no distinction between the saints and the non-saints. There they are sinners alike and all sin daily. Only that the sins of the holy are not counted but covered. And the sins of the unholy are not covered but counted. It's good. Let's try to wrap this up. David sees his sin. He confesses it. Verse 1, he knows then that his transgressions are forgiven. The word literally means removed. Verse 1b, his sins are covered. That word means his sins are put out of sight. The Lord does not count David's sins. Paul uses the same two verses here in Romans 4 to explain justification. What what is justification? It is a settled state of a right relationship with God because of Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. That's justification. That is Paul speaking truth to the power of sin. And I hope you understand that because if you didn't listen to that, you'll be confused when I say what I'm going to say here. We do not speak truth to the power of sin by only saying stop sinning. We do not speak truth to the power of sin by only saying stop sinning. No, we speak truth to the power of sin with the gospel. We're on the cross. Jesus does what? What does he do? He forgives sin. What are the great Christian themes? Propitiation, substitution, atonement, justification. Propitiation because we need it. We're sinners. Substitution because we need it. We're sinners. Atonement because we need it. We're sinners. Justification because we need it. We are sinners. That's amazing to me. That is our God. Because God sees everything. Psalm 139, he knows our going out and our coming in. Hebrews 4, he knows the motive and intent of all our actions and words. He's familiar with all our ways. So what is the only way for God not to see our sin when God sees everything? Well, the answer to that is they have to be covered. They have to be removed. they, They have to be blotted out in some way. So in David's time, the removal was symbolized as dramatic. The day of Yom Kippur, right? Two animals, goats, brought before the high priest. The high priest, and I wish I could have seen this. He would lay his hands on both animals and confess the sins of God's people on on the animals. I just wonder what that's like. I imagine there has to be some intensity in that as he's just confessing the sins of the people. And what that did was symbolizing the transfer of their sins on to the goats. And then one of the goats' throat was cut. To make the point that without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness of sins. The other goat was driven into the wilderness. The scapegoat. And that symbolized to the people. That their sins were being taken right away. Far away into the wilderness. And as they saw the animal. Going out into the wilderness. This is what David sings here. In these opening verses of Psalm 32. Sins forgiven. Sins removed. They've been dealt with. Blotted out. They've been covered. Are they horrible? Sure but they're forgiven. And you see that little scapegoat and other goat thing, that was a picture of future grace. When on the cross, Jesus was both goats in order that no sin, no transgression, no iniquity would stick and stay and be seen by God for those who confess them and turn to Jesus. So even as I think of the evil in my own heart, I ask myself, Joe, why are you in a right relationship with God? There's only one answer. Because Christ took my punishment for my sins, for my transgressions, for my iniquities, once and for all on the cross. Christ was punished for me, He's punished for you. You're totally free, your sins are covered don't try to cover them up don't blame other people you know your boss your spouse your church your parents for your sins verse two that's deception listen to what peter says acts 319 repent then and turn to god so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the lord do do you need times of refreshing do you So there's a small village in France as we close it. When it comes to paying its taxes, it was written in the city ledger, taxes paid for the maid's sake. And the maid was Joan of Arc. Because she put her life on the line and died. And it saved France. So the reward for her was the taxes of her home village were dismissed. The debt removed, erased in the city ledgers. Think about that for a moment. This is what every Christian has in their ledger. Punishment is removed for Jesus' sake. Punishment is removed for Jesus' sake. That's got to mean something, right? So, will you not confess your sins this morning? Let Jesus take it, pay it, cover it as you confess it. You'll be like a brand new person. A brand new person. And by the way, do you feel safe? (laughs) I do. Because we are safe. We're safe to be honest. We're safe to see the truth about ourselves. We're safe to speak the truth of the gospel to the power of sin. Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. It's paid. It's done. One last thing. Isn't it interesting to see that in verse 11? What is David's response Wait for the Lord, but then he. Excuse me. He says in verse thirty-two, he says, "Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, <laughs> all you upright in heart." So David says, "Sing," in light of confessed sin. The prodigal son's dad says, "Hey, let's throw a party," in light of confessed sins. Uh, verse seven. Do you see it there at the end? You are my hiding place. You will re- you will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs. God was the original uh, inventor of surround sound. You will so- surround me with songs of deliverance, verse 7. Get the cat, you get it? Hey, 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 hey! If you think I'm going to go home and have cabbage for lunch today, n- no way. We're going to get something special. You see? A long time ago, there was a really hard man in our congregation in Tennessee. Very hard, very moral, very religious kind of grumpy, a little bit snooty. Thought himself always right. Difficult to be around. He always had the calls for like, you know, holiness, everything. He never gloried in the cross. But in time, the truth came out. It always does. And his truth was that he had another lady. It wasn't his wife. We tried to get to him, extend forgiveness to him. This is how he handled the sin. He got the church lawnmower two, three times a week. Cut the yard. Worked in the yard. Cut the yard. Worked in the yard. Cut the yard. Worked in the yard. Like, what are you doing? Oh, preacher. Oh, preacher. I said, stop it. You could cut this yard a billion years and you'll never be able to set yourself Right? What did we say? Sunday by Sunday. What do we sing? Sunday by Sunday. What do we pray? Sunday by Sunday. Can you not humble yourself and glory in the cross? Can you not do that? I never found out the answer. Cuz he just left. All those years. All those years. Just like that. That was a sad one. It could have been just like this God, will you forgive me? I did a terrible thing and I'm going to need lots of help, but I need you to forgive me. And just like that, it comes. You no know, waiting around, put yourself in a corner for a few months and think about what you did. No, just like that. That's grace. Let's pray. Thanks for your attention. It's funny, Father, a million songs are popping in my head about your grace. I won't say any of them. I'll just say this, to him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us before your glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself up for our sins, that we might be delivered from this present evil age. To you, God, for such goodness and compassion on sinful people like us. To you, God, be glory and majesty and authority and power forever and ever, world without end. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.